Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Shalini George about mindful lawyering. Shalini is a professor of legal writing at Suffolk Law School, a former practicing lawyer, and a prolific author on the topics of learning, distraction, and mindfulness. Her most recent book, The Law Student's Guide to Doing Well and Being Well, is on the cusp of being released. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Shalini. Thank you so much, Shelley. I'm so happy to be here to talk about these topics. Oh, well, thank you so much for being here. With your new book, soon to be hot off the press. I'd love to start by asking you how the book came to be. What inspired you to write it? Okay, well, great question, um, Shelley, and one that I've actually given some thought to myself. Um, So I've got a bit of a history of work um, in this area. I I started writing about distraction back in 2012, 2013, um, and then I did some work on mindfulness. And as I was coming up, up on my sabbatical, which I had in the fall of 2020, and thinking about what I wanted to write about, I really found myself thinking about how I could move the topic of wellness beyond just mindfulness. And I don't want to take anything away from mindfulness. It's, it's incredibly important. Um, and I know that a lot of people listening are, are really you know mindful um, people and really interested in that topic, but we all know that mindfulness isn't the only thing that we need to be thinking about. So I really wanted to take mindful, I wanted to take this, this idea of wellness um, for law students and for lawyers even beyond mindfulness. So I started thinking about wellness in general, and I also started thinking about brain health. Um, and it, I, it's interesting, doing the research, I sort of came to this realization of how interconnected all of it really is. Um, in my teaching, I've always talked to my students about needing to be able to perform their best cognitively. Um, you know, we're knowledge workers as lawyers. What we offer our clients is our brains, basically. And so I've always talked to my students about how their clients will rely on them, will rely on their ability to think, argue, persuade, solve problems. So I started thinking about then, let's not take that brain health for granted. Let's think about how we can actually maximize our brain's performance. And Mm. as it turned out, maximizing your brain's performance is really based on a lot of the wellness principles um, that I wrote about in my book. So it was sort of a really happy combination of topics I had been working on and moving them forward into this idea of both doing well and being well. How do we perform our best uh, mentally and take care of ourselves in the process? Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And so, so timely. (laughs) Uh, Yes. And I'm I'm wondering the sort of the idea of brain health, what are, or are there certain factors that can affect out the health of our brains? Well, there are. Yeah, there are. And, and, and let's, let's be honest, I'm not a doctor. So, and and I definitely don't claim to be, but I have always been very interested in this idea that, you know, we, as lawyers, we need to be able to think clearly. We need to be able to learn. We need to be able to remember. And since I'm a professor, I'm often talking about these things to students and it's particularly important to them, these ideas of, of learning and 
taking them beyond perhaps memorization and things like that, that they may have been doing um, in college. And I'm, I'm, I try in the law school context to move beyond that. Um, and so brain health, how do we do that? It's really interesting. Uh, the more that we work our brains, um, the more we take care of our brains. So things that we maybe take for granted, like what we eat, um, extra, mm. how we exercise, getting enough sleep, building social connections so that you have people to rely on in times of stress, or you have a reservoir of energy to offer others who need some help, um, you know, so ways of dealing with stress, all of those things that perhaps we've always thought of as being incidental are actually some of the primary things that we need to be worried about in taking care of our brains. Mm -hmm. And then when we take care of our brains, we're not only taking care of ourselves, we're putting our brains in the best position to be able to think creatively and learn and problem solve on behalf, on behalf of our clients. So it's really, truly a win-win all around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the um, sort of ways to improve brain health, but what are some of the things that might get in the way of us having the healthiest brain that we could have? Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all want to, we all want healthy brains, that's for sure. And unfortunately, I think the way that technology has developed over the last say 10 or 15 years and the way that we use and access information um, through technology has the potential to really affect um, maybe not brain health so much as brain performance. Um, mm. So I, I think I mentioned earlier that I started a lot of my research uh, almost maybe 10 years ago on this topic of distraction. Uh, I was really seeing in my students, I thought um, it, I saw in them a lack of focus or a lack of an ability to concentrate. And I thought, you know, if, if I sit them down and ask them to focus on something for an hour, they're almost, um, it's almost impossible for them to do that. They want to reach for a phone. They want to check email. They want to check a text message. They want to check a sports score. They want to order some food and a coffee and then get back to their work. <laughs> and so that distraction, I, I, uh, anecdotally thought was affecting my students, but I thought, well, instead of sounding like a curmudgeonly old law professor, let me do some research and see if there really is any effect on our brains from all of that distraction. And what I learned was that there really is an effect. Um, we use a different part of our brain when we're, distraction, when we're distracted. Uh, it's the part of our brain that sort of scans the environment um, for danger prehistorically, that's what it did. But now it's scanning the environment for an interesting text message or mm -hmm. video on TikTok or whatever, or in Snapchat or whatever the kids are using these days. Um, and so all of that distraction ignites a part of our brain that is not the part we need to deeply focus. And what we need to deeply focus is our prefrontal cortex. And we're sort of losing the ability to engage that prefrontal cortex the more we allow ourselves to be distracted. That's what I learned through doing, doing some of my research. So distraction is one barrier to um, good cognitive performance. Stress is another barrier because stress ignites hormones in our brains and the amygdala in particular um, releases cortisol, which initiates this fight or flight response um, in our bodies. And it sort of starts this whole process that is um, really bad for your brain generally. 
uh, and it, it leads to a lack of concentration, a lack of sleep, perhaps poor diet choices, and it kind of can get, you can get caught in a vicious circle where stress makes you make bad decisions, which in turn makes it harder for you to study or, or to um, you know, complete a task well, and then you get more stressed out because you're not doing well. And so those are two of the big things that I've been focusing on, distraction and stress. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and where does the, um, the, um, the idea of multitasking or task, task switching Mm-hmm. come into it mm-hmm. I've heard so much about that that we really all think that we're great multitaskers but none of us are and yeah I wonder how that factors into sort of brains performance and distractedness and yeah. the types of things that you're well, researching yeah it's the ultimate distraction multitasking basically so again you're using that back part of your it's called the parietal lobe but you're using that part of your brain when you every time you switch tasks you're igniting the part of your brain um, that is easily distracted. And so we think we're multitasking, but we're never really multitasking, right? We're task switching. And each time you switch from one task to another, your mind has to take some time to acclimate to the new thing. It may still be thinking about the thing you switched from. It may be thinking about the next thing that it thinks it needs to switch to. And it's not thinking about the thing that you actually needed to do in the moment. So multitasking, I read an interesting study once um, in which I think that the researchers determined that pot smokers were actually more efficient than multitaskers in doing a particular (laughs) task. And I thought, you know, if I tell this to people, if I tell this to my students, maybe that will get their attention. Um, So, you know, multitasking, there's so many studies, there's so much research on the fact that it is not good for your brain performance to multitask. Mm -hmm. Single tasking sounds old fashioned. But that's really the ultimate concentration is when you're single tasking or just doing one task, Mm -hmm. one one thing at a time, one thing at a time. Yeah, yeah. And it just sounds so boring. Um. Yeah, sounds so boring, (laughs) except that that's when you might do your best work. So maybe boring in the moment, but not boring in its results or in its efficiency. Right, right. I've heard that we have a very limited capacity to focus, to to bring the type of focus that you're talking about to a particular task. I think it was like 50 minutes or something, just under an hour. Is that something you've come across as well? Yeah, I have. And I think it's one reason why long classes or long study sessions or long work sessions where you're trying to cram to finish something is never going to be a very productive way to go. And that's Mm -hmm. because we all have basically a finite amount of um, attention available to us in a day. Some experts, um, I'm a big fan of Cal Newport. I don't know if you've read any of his books, um, but Cal Newport, um, it's a great book that I read and really internalized a lot of. um, His book was called Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. Hmm. Um, And his theory is that that even the most proficient thinker, you know, somebody who's really, really good at at, um, corralling their attention can focus for about four hours in a day. That's four hours of really deep focus. Most of us would have a hard time even doing that. Mm -hmm. And you can't do it all at one time. It's basically a finite resource. And you need to learn to tap into it, first of all. But 
your brain gets tired. So you focus for 45 or 50 minutes and then your attention starts to wander. It starts to slack off. And maybe you want to keep, you keep trying to work because you think you really need to get something done, but you kind of reach a point of diminishing returns where just trying to do the work is not actually doing the work. And you're, you're kind of better off at that point, taking a break, maybe going for a short walk or um, getting a glass of water or talking to somebody for a few minutes and then coming back to trying to do the work. Um, Mm -hmm. So 50 minutes, 55 minutes, and then a break is a really good way to approach a day where you have a lot of work that you need to get done. Um, You just need to sort of schedule yourself so that you know you can take those breaks. Right, right. And that's pretty challenging in a busy law practice, for example. Uh, it, It definitely is. And sometimes, you know, people might not understand, except again, the end result is probably what will show them that your, your method of taking breaks is the one that's going to be most successful. You know, it reminds me of another study that I read, um, recently where researchers took two groups of people, then one group, they sent them on a walk, um, in a nature reserve for 20 minutes. And the other half of the, of the, um, study participants had to walk through a city and then they gave all of the participants some concentration memorization tasks like you know they read them 10 numbers and they had to say them backwards or something something that really requires focus and the the group that walked in nature performed 20 percent better than the group that walked through the city and they did the experiment again and they switched the people. So it's not that the <laughs> smarter people walked in nature, the, the better performers actually were the ones who walked outside. And the theory was that walking through a city still requires attention where you have to pay attention to where cars are coming and you have to focus your attention to cross a street or to, to deal with these things that are pulling at your attention. Whereas walking in nature, your mind is kind of left to just engage in breathe the fresh air, look around, but nothing's really requiring you to focus. So ha- giving your brain that break, or maybe the brain getting the break, you may not have intended to give it <laughs> the break, but, but your brain having a chance to, to rest, they call it attention um, restoration theory, but the, the brain having a chance to rest like that makes it then more able to focus when you go back to work. So fascinating. Yeah, it, it's interesting. There's, there, there are a lot, there's a lot of science behind all of this. And I think sometimes, you know, when people are skeptical about things like the importance of diet or exercise or relaxation techniques, you know, this, it's helpful to point to the science so that we can say there, there's, there's proof that this stuff actually works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you mentioned the word relaxation. And I think um, for a lot of us, when it comes to um, mindfulness and relaxation, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you could maybe uh, explore the differences between the two, because I, I think that for a lot of us, we think that they're one and the same, that they're the same thing. Right. Well, in the book that I worked on, you know, the one that you mentioned, um, I've tried to approach mindfulness in two different ways. And I really do think that mindfulness can serve two, if not more purposes um, in most of our lives. So we talk, we've talked already about distraction and how many of us are operating in almost a constant state of distraction. Well, the antidote to that is mindfulness, right? So if we're distracted by many things at one time, how do we wean ourselves off of that distraction? How do we not look at our phone all the time? How do we not 
you know, have all the pop-up alerts and all of these things on our computers. Well, turn all of that off and just practice being in the moment, whatever that moment may be. I don't necessarily think it has to be meditation, but uh, wherever, or if you're outside, if you're walking, if you're sitting at your desk, being in the thing that, you know, if it's an assignment or if it's a brief that you're writing, really being right there with the task at hand. There's that kind of mindfulness that is very specific to developing focused attention, sort of the antidote to distraction. Mindfulness though is also a relaxation technique. So there are so many ways in which I think we, we have to actively seek out relaxation because the world we live in is so jam packed with things that stress us out, you know, mm-hmm. family, the pandemic, school, clients, you name it. We've all got so many things um, screaming for our attention and causing stress in various ways. So yeah. mindfulness is, an, is a fabulous way to say, I'm going to take a break from all these things that are stressing me out. And I'm really going to think about me, my person, my brain, my thoughts, And I'm going to unwind from all of this. I'm going to let some of those stressors or those tensions, I know they're there, but I'm going to let go of them for five Mm. minutes, for 10 minutes, for half an hour. And that kind of mindfulness, it can be a thought meditation, it can be a mantra, it can be walking, a walking meditation or a running meditation. I'm a, I'm I'm a big fan of nature. So Mm. for me, you know, going for a run or going for a walk, um, have some of my it's some of my best thinking and some of my most relaxed time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the book, I do talk about a lot of other relaxation techniques too. Um, you know, music, aromatherapy, journaling. There are so many different things that we can do. And maybe we have to try, you know, not, and not, it's not a one size fits all. So maybe we have to try different ways um, that we can engage in, you know, mindful exercise. Uh, so ways to, to just kind of come down from all of the stress. So I do, I do think it mindfulness can play those two roles. It can be a way to really work on focused attention when you need to be productive, when you really need to, um, solve something, really put your mind to it. Um, practicing mindfulness can help you develop that focus. And then it can also help you just deal with a lot of life stresses that we all have. Mm-hmm. Well, that's super helpful because I think, um, you know, perhaps some people might not be interested in looking into mindfulness because they think maybe it's all just a relaxation technique, but yes. there's so much more to it yes. uh, than that. And I'm just thinking if someone is, um, you know, trying to focus on a particular task, mm-hmm. is there a sort of mindfulness technique strategy mm-hmm. that they could easily you know, kind of call mm-hmm. upon to help mm-hmm. them? Mm-hmm. That's a great question, Shelley. Um, and I think sometimes people probably think, well, I know I'm distracted, you know, I love my phone and I, you know, I'm really connected to all these different people and apps and, you know, this is, I, I'm, I can handle all of it. <laughs> so can I just say to myself when I want to focus, okay, self, you know, time to focus and then you're going to focus. <laughs> but I'm, I mean, what I've found through the re- through my research is that I don't think it, that's really the case. Um, your brain, and I don't mean you, I mean any of us, um, our brains 
we've we've trained them and to expect novelty, to expect the excitement of whatever that next hit of information is. So it's not so simple then that you just sit down and you say, now I'm going to focus because your brain will fight you in that a little bit. Your brain will keep saying like, if every time you are waiting for a cup of coffee or waiting for a friend, you pull your phone out and you're scrolling through it, you're, you're teaching your brain. It need not ever be engaged in just one thing at a time, right? You're going to fill every moment with that. So you know, the problem then, of course, is that when you say, now I want to focus, you're going to sit down and your brain's going to be like, but wait, there's a whole bunch of really interesting things going on. I'm missing out. The, the old FOMO comes into play. Right. So um, the technique that I, I work on and that I try to teach my students um, is to really take um, control of your work situation and to be intentional about what you're doing. So what we do or what I try to teach is kind of a step-by-step -step process where you, first of all, and before the process even begins, no phones in the room or nearby you when you're working. Um, and I could go into a lot of detail about studies of, you know, how, just how distracting your phone is, but we'll save that for another time. <laughs> the process basically is to, to, to work with intention. So to first think intentionally, what is the task that you need to complete? Um, you know, for me, it's my students work, but for lawyers, you know, you have a brief, you have to write, you've got a letter, you've got to write, you've got something that you need to, to work through. So to really be very specific in your mind about what it is you hope to accomplish, not just, I'm going to sit and bill four hours now, but mm -hmm. what are you going to accomplish in those, you know, what do you really hope to accomplish in those four hours? Right, right. So you first decide what it is you want to accomplish. Secondly, you make sure that your space physically is conducive for you to be able to do that work. So remove things that would compete for your attention. So in these days when we're all working from home, a lot of us are working from home, it's really important to think about, don't have the bills that you need to pay next to you. Don't have, you know, assignments that you need to work on or letters that need to be, like take, you know, take those things out of your sight. So set yourself up physically so that, only the thing that you've decided you need to work on is the thing that's in front of you. Mm, good point. The next step that I would argue is, you know, a little breathing meditation. So you've cleared your space physically, then think about creating um, the mental space for you to really be engaged in your work. And even five minutes of uh, thoughtful breathing where you relax your shoulders, relax your body, relax your jaw, you know, roll your neck out, maybe roll your shoulders, and then just breathe um, intentionally, deeply, thinking about breathing in some energy and breathing out your tension. And you, in those five minutes, might find that there are things that are in your kicking around in the back of your brain that you didn't realize you were thinking about. You know, somebody you need to call, somebody's birthday that's coming up, an errand you need to run. You realize what they are, you let go of them as you're breathing. And maybe you jot them down somewhere. So that you're like, oh, you know, I have these couple of nagging thoughts. I've jotted them down. I'm going to put that away. I know that after I finish my work, I can pick that back up. I haven't forgotten those things, but I don't need to think about them right now. Okay. So that breathing process kind of creates the mental place for you to be able to really engage in the work that you've decided to do. And then you do your work. Mm -hmm. All of that probably just takes maybe six or seven minutes to prepare yourself. Uh, and I think if we skip that mental preparation, then you might find you're working on something, but your brain isn't really in what you're working on. And then 
it takes longer or you're not as efficient, you're not as productive, you don't do your best work. So that's that's kind of a process that I have found works for me and something that I, I try to um, have my students try in the classroom. And you know, when I speak to lawyers and talk about you know, how you balance all of these competing demands. It's not by working on all of the things at once. It's by really intentionally working on, on, on one thing at a time. Right. Right. And I love the idea of the just five minutes of just mm-hmm. getting into the moment, you know, mm-hmm. breathing and letting those sort of thoughts come. And if you need to jot them down, so you don't sort of constantly think about, oh, oh you know, I might forget it if I don't right. somehow keep thinking about it. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. And some, sometimes we don't even realize what's kicking around in our brains until you take those five minutes. You know, right. you don't even realize until you stop sometimes that there's something that happened last week that you're still, your brain is still kind of thinking over. But because you're on the go all the time, you haven't allowed yourself to process it. And five minutes or seven minutes of just quiet breathing, and all of a sudden those thoughts make themselves known. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so interesting oh my goodness the brain is so fascinating it is <laughs> it is it's incredibly powerful <laughs> yeah. um and very fascinating and so you know really really important that we take care of it absolutely absolutely and I'm wondering just in sort of a law practice what mm-hmm. are some of the um benefits of mindfulness we've talked about you know focused attention mm-hmm. and uh, you know, getting the work done, but other things that, um, you know, might, there might be some other benefits of mindfulness, a mindfulness practice for lawyers? You know, um, it's such a good question, Shelley, because I think we're reading a lot and learning a lot about the mental stresses that lawyers face. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a real problem with um, addiction. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of research, obviously, about mental health crisis. Um, And I sometimes think maybe we are so busy working, we forget why we wanted to be lawyers in the first place. Mm -hmm. Uh, We forget um, some of the good thoughts that we had about what lawyers do and what we wanted to accomplish, you know, when we went to law school and what we envisioned ourselves doing. Um, we get so caught up, I think, in, in billable hours and productivity in doing what we think everybody else is doing, um, you know, walking, sort of walking the walk and talking the talk without stopping to think about why we're walking that way and why we're talking that way. Mm-hmm. And I think mindfulness is, is a really important way to connect yourself back to why, what, why am I here? Why am I in this job? Why am I helping this client? Um, what can I, what do I get from this? What am I offering through my work? And, right. you know, to, to really try to take ourselves back to, we all wanted to be lawyers because there was something good that we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I think it just, it, it, sometimes even in law school, I see that it's this, you lose it. You know, it's, if yeah. it's studying, it's internships, it's job stress, exam stress. And then in the working world, it's, you know, getting the right job and feeling like you're performing well and making sure that you're pleasing everybody. And, and, you know, how about just making sure you're pleasing yourself? Hmm. Oh, so well said. And it's such a crazy treadmill. Sometimes once we hop on, it's really difficult to get off. It it really is. And, and I, I sometimes, I, I know that, you know, I, it can sound, sounds a lot easier than it maybe is, but you know, when we're talking about mindfulness, 
we all have we all have control of ourselves and our minds. Um, mm-hmm. There are many things we don't control, but the one thing I think we can try to do is just to take care of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. The idea of self compassion too is yes. uh, something that it's it's finding its way into so many different areas, um, right. and research is just. Know, uh, supporting how helpful that is to combating stress and all, all sorts of things. Absolutely. Um, and I'm just wondering too, uh, I've heard things that things about certain skills that mindfulness can help enhance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if you can explore that a little bit. Sure. Sure. I mean, <clears throat> so as lawyers, we are, um, you know, we're counselors, we're caretakers, we are um, we were expected to perform so many different kinds of caregiving for our clients. Um, we have to manage relationships in the office. We have to manage relationships between other lawyers. You know, there's a there's a lot involved in being a lawyer that um, it it can be difficult to find yourself. You know, in all of that. So mm-hmm. mindfulness, I think, you know, and I, I do sometimes worry that we don't want to, I don't want to say that mindfulness is the, is the end all be all cure for everything. I think what I do think is the cure for some things is to just stop and take things a little bit slower once in mm-hmm. a while. And all of those tasks that we're asked to do as lawyers, we don't even learn them in law school, a lot of them, right? We're just mm-hmm. kind of expected to, to do them. And so, you know, thinking about how you can maybe use your free time so that you are, are replenishing your own tank, right? So that you can be available in, in all of those caregiving roles that we're expected to do as well. Like mm-hmm. constantly, constantly, constantly giving is not a very tenable position to be in in the long term. And yeah, I think that, that, right. That's what happens with young associates a lot. Yeah. I think. Um, yeah. And there's so much I've been reading about uh, lawyer burnout these days. Yes, yes, yes. I just talked to a student of mine recently who um, he was telling me about all of the associates, all of the female associates that were leaving her firm, you know, in, in the third year or so. And I, I said, you know, something's got to change. Yeah. You know, something has to change. We can't, we can't have all of our bright young minds, um, you know, fleeing. Uh, and I, I do think there's so much, you know, it's well-being week um, as we're recording this, Shelley, right? It's um, mm. it, the ABA well-being week. So there are a lot, there's a lot of attention and there's a lot of focus and there are a lot more resources. And so I hope that uh, more lawyers and more firms and organizations and companies will, will start to um, help foster uh, an environment that is more conducive to avoiding burnout. Absolutely, absolutely. And is that the idea behind the the phrase mindful lawyering? Yes, for me, um, when I talk about mindful lawyering, and that that's a a term that came up in one of my previous books, and it's something obviously that I'm talking about still, it's, it's thinking intentionally and purposely about every part of the lawyering process, and whether that's the lawyering of you know, studying to be a lawyer or the lawyering of being a lawyer or the lawyering of managing other lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just just stopping to be intentional and thoughtful um, and, and caring for ourselves in that process as well. 
I like that, you know, stopping to be intentional and thoughtful. Yeah. yeah because I think the idea sort of mindfulness can just the, the word itself can turn some people off, but when you yes. unpack it and you sort yeah. of say, okay, what is it really? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How could people, how could that not resonate with people? <laughs> well, I think this is why I've always used the term, at least in the education setting and in my research um, and writing, I use the term mindfulness. I might tell you that I meditate personally, but I, I have found that um, talking about mindfulness, talking about it in terms of, of what it can do for our brains and this idea of uh, all of us as lawyers being knowledge workers and needing our brains to perform. So it's not, you know, you can kind of take it out of the realm of, of what some people might once have said was kind of hokey or, um, you know, religious or mystical in some way. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, it doesn't, it can be if you want it to be, but it need not be. It, what it really is, is just taking the time to think about who you are and what you're doing. And why are mm-hmm. you doing it? And why you're doing it. Yeah, yeah. the why. Yeah. So, so important. And as you say, it gets lost um, way too often. Yeah. 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 Yes. Some, something else that you address in the book. And again, I think it's so timely. You have a whole section on dealing with the challenges of learning and working online. Yes. And I'm wondering if you can share some of the, the tips that uh, you've provided in the book there. Yes, I would love to. Um, so, you know, I like most, um, you know, my world turned upside down last year when the pandemic mm-hmm. hit and I began teaching online and my, my uh, college age children were at home learning online and, you know, we're all, everybody's working online mm-hmm. learning, et cetera. Everybody's, and I, and I would feel so exhausted when I would finish teaching my classes and I, I couldn't figure out for a time like, you know, I could teach two classes live in person and not be so tired, but I would teach two classes online and I would be utterly exhausted. So I thought I bet I need to figure out what exactly is going on here. (laughs) So, you know, as I researched a little bit and I I realized there really is something it's called zoom fatigue, although it's, you know, it's online fatigue basically. (laughs) But um, when we are staring at a video screen all day long, it's overwhelming, you know, very different parts of our brain. So there are a few different issues. One is, and this is the one, so I I can speak um, most precisely, I guess, about trying to teach online or watching my children learn online. And that is, you know, as the professor, I'm talking and I'm constantly scanning all of the faces um, in in their little boxes to see if they're listening, how are they responding, and when we talk to each other live in person, we don't really stare at each other, right? We gaze, <laughs> you might look out the window for a minute or look at something or look up or look down. Online, we don't do that so much because we're trying to make that connection um, just by looking at each other through a video screen. So right. it becomes really taxing on your brain. You're overwhelming your visual senses basically by trying to maintain this focused attention through this computer screen without ever giving yourself the, cause you know, I'm afraid my, I'm afraid that my students will think I'm not looking at them or I right. think my students feel a great um, responsibility to show that they're paying attention and to be, to be looking at me. And that is very taxing. Mm-hmm. Um, people get very fixated on how they look. It's very mm-hmm. hard not to look at yourself. And so hiding the self view, I have found to be really, really helpful. If mm-hmm. I just don't look at myself, 
Uh, and there's, this is not just me, there is research um, on this. <laughs> um, it's very hard, all of us, like we, we want to say, oh my gosh, is that how my hair looks? And why am I making that face? And you know, why does my background look like that? So if you hide your self-view, you find that you actually are engaging with, with the computer without being worrying so much about how you look and how people are responding to you. And you can engage with the speaker with the content. Um, mm-hmm. Great advice, yeah. And taking breaks, it's really important. So much more important, even than if you're in a live meeting or something. If you are on video all day long, you have to stop. You have to create at least five minute breaks for yourself where you can stand up, stretch, get a breath of fresh air, give your brain a break before you put it in that that focused you know, time with the computer again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and also it's hard on the eyes. I've heard some- know experts saying you know if you can just look out the window even while you're on a on a video conference or in a video meeting and just Mm -hmm. look out the window and try to get some uh yeah distance (laughs) instead of staring at something so closely right right it's absolutely true and i think everybody gets afraid though that uh, oh will it look like i'm not paying attention and so we hesitate to do that uh, and, and sometimes maybe just turning your camera off, you know, turning, turning the camera off if you can, or here's a crazy thought, Shelly, <laughs> just have a phone call once in a while. Oh. Right? <laughs> An old like, fashioned phone call. Yeah, what about a phone call <laughs> while you go out for a walk? Or what yeah. about an email? If an email will do, like we all <laughs> went to the opposite extreme of, okay, I can't see you in person. So let's zoom. And we tried to do work and school and socialization. You know, we, everybody's done it. Zoom weddings, Zoom (laughs) coffee hours, Zoom happy hours, Zoom dating, Zoom work. (laughs) And so you're doing all of those different roles in this one location. And that is really hard on your brain too. I think I Mm -hmm. gave a little anecdote in the book. Like imagine if you walked into a bar and there you saw your professor, your parents, a prospective date a cousin and your neighbor all at the same time. Like <laughs> you would recognize there's something odd about that. You run for the hills. Oh my right, goodness. <laughs> right. But that's, that's what we all, so we all went too far in the direction of trying to recreate those moments by having them online. And I say, well, why not maybe just have a phone conversation or maybe sometimes just an email will, will do, yeah. you know, don't, don't force yourself um, into a zoom call if it doesn't need to be a zoom call. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yes, yeah, such good advice. I'd also heard about um, trying to not use your computer for everything while you're right. on a conference call. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what's the science behind that? I've, I've heard, you know, use an actual pencil or pen and paper to take notes instead oh. of taking notes on the com- on your computer. Oh, yes, you've got me on another one of my pet topics. Shall I? <laughs> So, um, you know, your brain has different learning channels. Um, you, we, we're, we're used to thinking about learning styles, maybe. People might say that they're, oh, I'm a visual learner or I'm an auditory learner. Like some people think that they take in information best when they see it. Some think they take it in best when they hear it. Some people think I need to write something down to remember it. Um, and we're kind of used to thinking about those learning channel, learning styles. But what my research revealed was it's not necessarily the learning style that that you that works better for you. What works best is if you don't overwhelm any one channel, 
So mm -hmm. again, like Zoom is difficult because it's all visual. And if you are typing on your computer, that's also really mostly visual. Whereas when you take pen to paper, you're getting more of a kinesthetic, um, tactile. Uh, it, it forces your brain to get out of that uh, computer world. And you usually, you write a little bit differently. Um, you know, when you're, when you're typing, sometimes what happens is we can type so fast that you just start typing a lot of words, like everything that somebody says. You, you know, if your professor is talking or if a boss is talking and they're saying something to you, you might just, you can type so fast that you sometimes just type every word they're saying, but you're not really processing um, when you do that. When you write right. notes, you kind of already start this learning process where you have to think, okay, what did they just say? I can't write all of that down. What are mm -hmm. the important points? You know, what are the bullets sort of points that I can take from that? So you're already starting a deeper learning process. It's, it's sort of a metacognitive, more of a metacognitive process where you are engaging already with the material by having to make decisions about what part of that, this do I need to write down? And am I maybe creating a to-do list at the same time? Or, you know, you can do more um, and your brain is processing in a slightly different way when you put pen to paper or pencil to paper than, mm -hmm. than as opposed to just typing. Oh, makes such good sense. Yeah. Part of wow. the reason where there's, you know, this whole debate in law schools about whether students should have laptops in the classroom and yeah, you know, because it's not only distracting, but also this thought that they're just click, 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 clicking and typing away as opposed to good old fashioned note taking where you have to think about, oh, okay, how does that fit with something I learned before? Maybe I need to, you know, I can distill it down to a few points and, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And where do you stand on that? I do not ban laptops in my classroom. Okay. Um, but I spend a lot of time educating my students about um, metacognition, thinking about how they learn, thinking about the effect of um, distraction on their brains. Um, and, and, you know, you're, I say you're here to learn. So if these things are not good for your learning process, then I'm going to encourage you to think about how you use your laptop so that it's mm -hmm. your friend, not your foe. Yeah, good thing. And I want them to make, yeah, I want them to make good decisions. And I, I personally feel if I take that decision making away from them, um, they're not learning that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And online shopping and all the other things that they tend to do at <laughs> yes. the same time. They do. Oh my God. They do. And I always tell them, it's like, I can tell when you're not paying yeah. attention to me. It's pretty yeah. obvious. Uh, I'm fortunate that I teach a small class. And so I can really say, Hey, I see you're not paying attention, you know, or I just call on people, you know, you can yeah. see when that happens. Um, so, so hopefully giving them some tools to be able to make good, good decisions themselves about how to use the laptops. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, such wonderful tips and advice, Shalini. I'm just wondering if there's anything that we didn't touch on that you think would be useful to pass on to listeners. Well, the one thing that um, I've been thinking about recently that I think is a good, another good tip for people to think about, and it sounds a little counterintuitive, Shelley, but one of the best ways to make sure that you have an effective and efficient day is to decide when your workday will end hmm. um, and, and making sure you stick to that. 
because I think with, uh, with email and with our laptops and with working from home and studying from home, what has ended up happening is there's this real blurring of lines between work and non-work. Yeah. And if you keep checking email or if you keep working on something, you know, until literally until you go to bed, you never give your brain a chance to rest, um, to make connections that it makes when it's not actively thinking about something. Like, you know, how many times do we think about like, there's something in the back of my mind or there's an idea on the tip of my tongue or, mm -hmm. you know, I can't remember something. And I know if I stop thinking about it, then I'll remember. Right. Right. So put allowing your brain to make the unconscious brain to make those connections. We never get to that point if we're always, always dabbling um, in work. So mm. having that end of, of work day and then actually ending your work day so that you not only give your unconscious brain a chance to relax, but you also make time for those stress and relaxation techniques that we talked about earlier. You know, yeah. when are you going to do yoga or when are you going to go for a walk if you're constantly, constantly working? Right, right. Yeah. Oh, excellent, excellent idea. Uh, I'm going to try to implement it. <laughs> yeah. Pick, just decide when you're ending your day, Shelly, and then have an end of work day routine where you kind of come up with a list of things. Okay, here's what I thought I was going to accomplish today. Here's what I did accomplish. Here's what I need to do tomorrow. Here's how I will make sure that I can relax. Because I know that, you know, these are the things that I will attend to tomorrow. Have yeah. a little routine. Yeah, I, lo I love that, doing a to-do to list for the next day, like the night before. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Instead of ruminating, you know, in the back of your mind again about <laughs> things that need to be done, you know, put it on, put it down, use your pencil or pen, write it on paper. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can relax for a little bit because you know you'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. And I bet you'll sleep better. Um, yes. We can, tell, we can have a whole conversation about that yeah. too, right? Mindfulness is a good way to prepare yourself for sleep as well. So yeah. you know, that, that relaxation, that time of, of kind of letting go of the stresses and worries that, that definitely will help us sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so wonderful talking to you and learning all about this fascinating area. Uh, I'm just wondering if we wanted to learn more about you and your upcoming book, where might we find that information? Well, um, you can find me on the Suffolk Law School website, certainly. Um, the two books that I've written are on the Carolina Academic Press uh, website. The one that we've been talking about primarily today is called The Law Student's Guide to Doing Well and Being Well, and that will be released um, any day now. That's on the Carolina that yes, thank you. That information is on the Carolina website. And about that book, I will say it's called the law students guide to doing well and being well, but it could be anybody's guide uh, to doing well and being well, because we all need, we all need to take care of our brains um, and to learn how to, how to perform and relax um, both. So um, the Suffolk Law School website is a great place to find me if you'd like to find me and Carolina Academic Press has uh, the two books and my law review, law review articles are on SSRN. If anybody is interested, I'm pretty easy to find, actually. Terrific. Well, we look forward to catching up on all the wonderful things that, uh, that you've been researching and writing about. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us and spending so much time uh, in passing on all your wonderful words of wisdom. 
Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm so excited about this work. I'm, I, I'm constantly learning myself and I really appreciate you giving me an opportunity to talk about it. Thanks for joining me today on the Excel Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L dot com.